0: Energy Transition
1: Now with David Linden. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, David Linden, the head of Energy Transition uh, for the Westwood Global Energy Group, and you're listening to Energy Transition Now. Offshore wind uh, is a renewable energy source that is set for dramatic growth. Uh, Here at Westwood, uh, we forecast that today's so just over sort of 50 gigawatts of global installed capacity is set to shoot up to almost 350 gigawatts just by the end of this decade. Well, the question of course on everyone's lips is how are we going to deliver all of this capacity? Um, to give us their perspective on things, uh, I'm really pleased to have Tim Pick as my uh, guest here today. Uh, Tim's uh, the recently appointed Offshore Wind Champion for the UK. I think a country that has historically made a big impact uh, in the sector, but now wants to do even more. Um, good to have you on the show, Tim.
0: Thanks very much, David. Nice to be here.
1: So look, um, it's you, know, you. You are relatively new into this role. Um, uh, I believe it started off in in May, and you're also relatively new uh, in the, I guess, in in the grand scheme of what what you could call new in the offshore wind sector. Because not maybe many people might have heard of you before, it would just be great to get a little bit of background on yourself, how you've got to where you've got to today, um, just sort of maybe fill in some of those historical
0: gaps for us. Yeah, no problem, David. So I, um, I'm um i a project development lawyer by training and experience. I've spent about 27 years since about 1996 um, working with project development teams on large-scale energy infrastructure um, supporting those teams from conception of the project you know initial MOUs, framework agreements all the way through to financial close and construction Um, it's been my absolute bread and butter for well over well nearly three decades now um, including about 10 plus years living in abu dhabi in the middle east and then given the nature of the industry uh, a vast amount of travel projects all around the world um, as you said, relatively new to offshore wind, so I come at this with quite a heavy oil and gas, thermal power, aluminium smelters, refining and pet chem type of background. Um, Interestingly, Minister Hans in my first meeting with him suggested that this was some kind of elaborate carbon offsetting arrangement where I was now paying some sort of penance for my previous life. Um, but no, it's been um, it's been a real pleasure to um, to get stuck into offshore wind.
1: Yeah, and and look, I mean, I don't think you're anyone. You know, I think every second person that you meet who's now in offshore wind was once in the oil and gas sector. So, it, it's quite a common theme, I guess. Um, okay, so but 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 let's talk a little bit about maybe offshore wind specifically um, uh, itself. So, you know, many countries in the world have the opportunity to have shore wind, but it's it's somehow sort of developed quite quickly here in the UK. Um, and until last year when when I guess the Chinese market overtook the UK, it was the largest offshore wind market in the world. Now we're putting more in place to grow this market even further. You know, what, what is it about offshore wind that's so important here in the UK? Why are we talking about it so much?
0: Well, first of all, I, I, what one of the one of my overriding impressions of the sector so far, before we get into the technicalities, is people love working in this sector. Um I went to the global offshore wind conference in Manchester a few weeks ago. it's one of the most positive experiences of my life. I've never seen a an industry that buzzes like this one. People genuinely be you know they really understand that they're doing something globally significant, um working at that sort of, Complex sort of um, interface of climate change, politics, industry, and innovation. So, um, super exciting, and and I've really drunk the kool aid since then. Um, <laughs> in fact, I I think my wife's got sick of me talking about sure and the challenges it faces. Um, so going to the um, going to the sort of um, UK pipeline. So um, those of you who. Read government announcements um, may have picked up on the um, British Energy Security Strategy that was published in April. Um, This new strategy is obviously focused on um, energy security in terms of what can we produce in the UK for the UK. Um, Wind is abundant. We have something like 880,000 square kilometres of territorial waters. Um, way bigger than any other European any other North European countries, multiples of places like Germany and the Netherlands. Um, so it's an obvious source of zero marginal cost electricity um, to harness the um and and the security strategy I guess um, recognized that by bumping the target yet again. So we've had a target of 30 gigawatts by 2030, then 40. Now we've bumped the target to 50. Um, yeah we're with 8 years to go let's hope nobody bumps it again because we really are closing in on something very difficult now absolutely i mean it, it it is it is that kind of
1: ambition which is quite amazing i think other phrases like trying to be the saudi arabia of of the offshore wind is another one that sort of maybe speaks to the ambition but but i guess the reality as far as i remember from that document is targeting so that the reason we're looking at that volume is because it should be enough offshore wind to power every UK home by 2030. Not every bit of power that we require, but certainly every UK home should be powered or could be powered by offshore wind in theory by then. is Am, am, am I remembering that correctly?
0: No, that, that's correct. And I think one of the um, things I'm keen for people to do... Um, and uh, and again, my friends probably don't like me banging on about this, but I, I think people need to be more connected with the source of generation. I think we've all got very comfortable with the idea that electricity arrives in our homes, it goes into the plug, you have no idea where it comes from. Um, and if you download the National Grid ESO app or something like, you know, one of those sort of apps and actually have a look at where it's coming from, it's fascinating. First of all, you see... It, put, it really shows you what progress the UK has made. Some days you look at that app and offshore wind is up there at 50%. Um, but it also shows you we've got a way to go. There's still a lot of gas-fired power in there, um, it, you know, and obviously that drives currently drives the pricing in the wholesale market. There's some reform proposed for that. But, um, you know, we, um, we have a way to go before we're doing every home on offshore wind.
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, but it's the ambition, I
0: guess, that's there. And, and and I guess
1: that takes me sort of to my next question around, you know, having an offshore wind champion. Um, not many sectors have champions as often companies who are seen as champions of that industry. I think in, in the US you have got some kind of climate champions or clean energy champions that have been selected, etc. But this is kind of the UK's first certainly offshore wind champion. You know, maybe, well, two 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 things. Why do we need one? <laughs> Why do we need an offshore wind champion? Um, this is not a job interview, by the way, but it is. I guess it's useful in the context of what we're trying to do. Um, and also, what
0: role do they ultimately play? Yeah, so it, look, it's a super interesting question and actually one that I was asking myself during the interview process. Um, I think the role... It, so so just going back first of all going back to the energy security strategy um, one of the concepts in there so so the the way to accelerate the deployment of offshore wind in the UK is to accelerate the existing pipeline Um, the existing pipeline is what it is um, with a process per project of usually around a decade from lease award through to to, uh, financial investment decision and commencement of construction decade or 12 years something like that to, you know it, it's a very long period of time and if you think about that in terms of technology evolution you start out with you know if you only look over the last 10 years you beginning of that period you may have had three or four megawatt turbines you now up at 16 megawatts so it's um it, it just feels cumbersome um, and so the the security strategy um, proposed the establishment of something called the Offshore Wind Acceleration Task Force um, which is a cross-government industry group of people, not a decision-making body but a body which is put together to try and unpack that 10-12 year cycle, look at bottlenecks, um, look at friction in the system, see what can be done to, um, to ease the path. So if you can get the 10 or 12 years down to five or six years um you, you know there's the fifty gigawatts um is pretty deliverable um but it's a big challenge because there's some thorny issues in there like grid connections planning permission et cetera um so yeah what why a champion um i i think there's i think there's a couple of reasons for it first of all to have someone whose sole focus is on this acceleration agenda um and essentially co so i co-chair the task force with minister hands um but he obviously has a massive waterfront of energy policy to deal with. Um, my sole task is to follow up the work of the task force. So it's um, it's providing a bit of execute or sort of follow up capability, I guess, and, uh, you know, someone to quarterback the work. That's one part of it. And I think the second part, which has actually been more interesting for me, has been it it, it puts someone Who's half in and half outside the government system, half in and half outside industry? Um, and so you can so in this role, you can have lots of very direct cross-cutting conversations with people at all different levels in different stakeholders um, that they maybe find difficult to have with each other, or there's hierarchy issues getting in the way, um or just formality getting in the way. Um, and so, that's been the real, that's one of the key benefits is the role, is the access you get on all, to all stakeholders at a senior level, which allows you to talk to them, frankly, ask them to do stuff, remind them of their um, task force commitments, etc. Excellent.
1: Yeah, and, and it's an interesting one because, I mean, you mentioned the, the Global Offshore Wind event uh, a couple of weeks ago or so, um, probably a bit long, it feels like three weeks ago now since we're talking at least, um, but Within that, it was interesting because previous conferences had felt like it was starting to stick. The topics were repetitive, if you you put it in those words. Um, Nothing wrong with the conference itself, but it's clear that people were stuck in where they were going. Well, this year it started to feel much more like, hang on, we actually know what the issues are. We just need to go about solving them. And here are some of the ways we could solve them. So ideas were coming out as how to solve them. And and I guess a champion as such for the UK, at least, is again, is one of those things like, we know what the problems are, let's go and try and solve them. And we know some of these are, as you say, cross-cutting issues you simply can't solve in, in what I guess are historically silos, right? So we'll come into the challenges and those things in just a minute, but there've been silos that have existed across energy, the energy industry for quite some time. How do you cut across them? And 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 help everybody see and and be aligned in in maybe trying to solve some of these things.
0: No, that, look, that's correct, David. And I think I think the other aspect, which I probably should have touched on earlier, is coming at it cold or relatively cold, um, but with a lot of project development experience, um, has allowed me to ask some pretty dumb questions or to <laughs> um, you know to probe things that look a bit odd from a sort of international or cross-industry perspective um, and you know sometimes you ask a dumb question you get an even more dumb answer and um, and then you think well I better deal with that as part of the task force so um, it's um, it, it, yeah it's it's allowed me to um, I, I came at it with no no agenda not much prior knowledge um, and it, you know I've been able to question everything and obviously, that you can only do that for so long until you, there's going to come a point where I'm part of the furniture, and quite quite honestly, part of the problem. And at that point, I will leave the building.
1: <laughs> well, hopefully, not too soon. There's a few things to be done, but I I I I know what you're saying, and and actually, asking some of the dumb dumb questions is sometimes the easiest way to to solve the problem as well. So, um, I, I I can see that now. I mean, you started to talk about some of these things, but you know, the to-do list can get quite long. Um, but what are, you know, when, when you're looking at this sector, what are some of those key challenges? If You could just bucket them up or break them down a little bit for us that you are seeing, that you are coming across and that, that you're thinking about, you know, look, hang on here, this is, this is the to-do list that we need to think about. These are the areas that, that the UK
0: needs to, needs to drive at. Yep, so I think there's, there are a few buckets here, so I think there are some, I think you will see in some of the um, the work the Crown Estate does and moving forward to Celtic Sea leasing round next year. Um, you, you will see a more joined up approach between Crown Estate and National Grid, for example, um, and some more and quite a lot of pre um, rework done by Crown Estate on environmental issues um, so that the development community when they're bidding for those leases has a has a a bit clearer line of sight to project development than they maybe have had before Um, so there's a sort of there's a package around leasing and as we do more of this work and we have more wind farms and more leasing um, you get into a more strategic issue for the UK as a whole, which is how do we use our marine space? Um, and so, as you'd imagine, there are teams within government that have that responsibility. And there's a bit of focus now on looking at that through the lens of offshore wind and ensuring that the different users of the sea, and that's everything from fishing to leisure to oil and gas to carbon storage. To conservation and environmental protection, and offshore wind, how we um, ensure that everyone can coexist and go about their business in a fair and uh, an equitable way. So there's a sort of a sort of a bucket of, let's say, um, site selection, um, site selection type and site selection and leasing issues. I would say that's one bucket. There's a second bucket, um, which is very much the focus of the energy security strategy on the consenting and licensing process, effectively the planning permission type process for offshore wind. Um, The the mechanisms we have for that, particularly around some of the environmental issues and the way you compensate for environmental um, deterioration need to be updated and so we'll see in the energy bill um, coming through parliament hopefully some tweaks to that regime to, um, to to make it more fit for purpose as we get larger uh, wind farm deployment while still maintaining quite honestly the world you know the UK's world leading position on environmental protection so this is not about um, riding roughshod over the environment and I think most people in the industry that you come across would absolutely support that I mean if you're if you're in this industry because you think it's the right thing and you're mitigating climate change, the last thing you want to do is be causing harm to the environment. So, um, so it's um, I think we're it's more about making the system work rather than finding shortcuts or something like that. So there's a planning and environment part. Um, there's a, a whole other bucket of issues around grid. Um, and you've seen the recent publication of the Holistic Network Design, which starts to yes. go some way towards coordination of the new look grid with
1: the offshore wind
0: world. Um, ideally reducing the number of radial connections into UK beaches, which has been a source of irritation for communities for a long time. Yeah. Um, and But generally uh, recognizing that we have to get the power to where it's needed and... We're not in the world of gas fired power plants which you can build on the edge of cities now we're in the world of windy spots miles offshore and well away from centers of demand so um, naturally you have to build more cabling um ideally offshore but you can't offshore absolutely everything and you know hopefully they hopefully um society will recognize that there is a need for to get power to where it's needed and there will be some disruption on shore and then finally i think the area that's that I never sort of appreciated I would get so involved with is the sort of issues around ports and supply chains. So as we ramp up our ambition for deployment, we're putting huge pressure on the supply chain. Um, And we're doing that at a time where many other countries are doing the same thing. So how do we support um, the development of a sustainable supply chain in the UK that can actually deliver? It's fine to get the planning permission moving, but if no one's around to build the stuff or supply the equipment, then that's a real problem. So uh, supporting a sustainable supply chain um, is is a seriously important part of the exercise. Um, And if we wind the clock forward to floating offshore wind. There's quite a lot of anticipatory work that needs to be done to support that deployment, particularly in ports.
1: Yes. Absolutely. No. We had uh, someone on our podcast a few few episodes ago to talk about that specifically and the sort of plethora of, well, technologies available, the roles that ports can play and the complexities around still, well, you know, how do you, well, you need to be incentivized from, from I guess, uh, a, a commercial perspective, but also just generally, how do you build this in in, in the most efficient manner um, while choosing the right technology, et cetera, starts to become very complicated. Um, and everyone's had this sort of fixed bottom mindset for so long. Once you start looking at floating, it opens up another whole world of other issues that, that you need to deal with. It solves a lot of other things, but it also creates a lot of other issues that you
0: need to solve. I agreed. And I think we, uh, you know, we need to recognize that, Floating large-scale floating structures are not so new for the UK and our oil and gas community have worked with those for a long time. I think the 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 difference here is the scale of serial production you need for these very large pieces of kit, and that requires very large port facilities, lots of space for both dry and wet storage, lots of assembly yards, big cranes, um, and you can't start building those in. 2030 to deploy in 2030 because they're they're actually quite large port projects in their own right that take five six years to plan and build so there's a need to um stimulate some investment there and anyone who again i'm not sure that that many people read the government website so closely but when i was um when my appointment was announced it was announced together with something called the flow mis scheme um which is a grant scheme which will be targeted at stimulatory, stimulatory investment for floating wind deployment. So lots of work going on there. The RFI for that has just closed um, as we speak. And the um, and in parallel, there is a industry and government floating wind, floating offshore wind task force, which is trying to produce a an industrialization roadmap to provide some very clear recommendations as to where we should place our bets, if you like, as a country on this technology. Uh, Not to try, I don't think it's government's role to select the technology, that's clearly an industry-led activity, but it's certainly government's role to create the the right environment so that port companies can feel confident to invest probably five years out from deployment.
1: Yes, Okay. absolutely. No, it's it's hugely important, and, and, and I think the UK in particular has been the sense that in the past has missed out on some of those supply chain opportunities and so it's very keen to get it right on 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 the floating wind side um but let me ask you just about that well quite a quite a large to-do list if you think about it you've nicely bucketed for us but there are quite a few complicated cross-cutting issues there that some folks have said that they're addressing in one way or another. There are different bodies, as you say, there's different task forces and etc. cetera. But in terms of your role specifically, and I guess that was one of the reasons to, to, to bring you on to here, was just to get, you know, is, is what you're doing really, you, you're having these discussions at the kind of, um, uh, uh, call that cross-cutting, I don't want to say high level, but the OWAT level, let's just say, uh, and that's the conduit that you could provide for people to have those conversations so they can be call call yourself a facilitator in that sense for these things
0: um, or do you, do you see yourself playing a slightly different role? No there's, look there's definitely a facilitator side of this and it, you, you know if you think about changes to planning for example the obviously the government leads on legislative change and then the relevant government departments lead on the implementation of that and what it means for resourcing and skills in the relevant statutory bodies so um, I think at the oat level we we keep the pressure on those people um, which is important and we and we have ministerial attention um, to ensure that the pressure is kept on and that those things don't drop off the to-do list or get put in the too difficult box Um, so it's yeah it's a facilitation role and it's also a little bit of a -a whack-a-mole type role so from time to time things come up where you know it's possible for me to just jump into a conversation and help move it in the right direction Um, and and that obviously comes with the nature of the appointment and people in the room recognizing that if necessary you can light a fire under it with ministers or whatever and that, and frankly i haven't had to do that because i think people um in general everyone is pulling in the same direction i've not heard anyone say we shouldn't accelerate offshore wind i've not se- heard anyone say that these processes are perfect as they stand and please don't even question them that's you know the uh, it goes to my my earlier point about this industry thrives on innovation and I, I don't think anyone ever question, no one ever says this turbine's now perfect, I'm going to stop innovating, and I see the same level of focus from the OAP members on the development process and development cycle and people question frankly everything. Um, it's, it's, a healthy, uh, it's a healthy forum. Absolutely and I think the conversations
1: I find myself having is as people are almost scared at how innovative and how fast growing and how fast changing something like this, even though it has, you know, 10 to 12 year, sort of, you know, uh, concept to build type cycle, a lot can change in 10 to 12 years. So it is a unique industry in one way, it's not like, uh, I don't want to compare it to like solar or something which has its own uh, challenges, etc. But the innovation can be pushed through quite quickly in some ways. Well, here, you're having to make some decisions quite early on. um, And and, and
0: the good thing is people are talking about it. Um, I mean, correct. There's a huge, um, you're right, there's a huge focus and, you know, and a a lot of goodwill in the system, um, which is really helpful. And, you know, obviously, um, you know, you look at the OAT task force members. There are people from companies that aggressively compete with each other. And that's fine. And they compete for their Crown Estate leases and they compete for their CFDs. And frankly, they compete for the supply chain. And it's and you know, they're robust competitors, um, but they and they're contributing at the OAT level for the good of the country as opposed to anything else. So not for their own um sort of um you know, company specific um issues, but to try and um improve the system for everybody. Absolutely.
1: Okay, And then in terms of that history, we started to talk about some of the history of the UK, we talked about how you know the UK is not exactly, you know, a, a stranger to uh, the to, to floating structures, uh, the UK is not uh, a stranger to, to, to the marine industry, the, uh, the, the offshore sector, etc. And I guess part of that's come through the history in the oil and gas industry, as well as, of course, other industries, but that is a major one. And, and, well, like yourself and others, you know, folks have transitioned over from, from that industry into this one. Um, can I ask you sort of, maybe initially broadly, how are you seeing that uh, overlap, should we call it, with the oil and gas industry here? Um, you know, on one hand, there's a discussion, a debate that goes on around energy security. Uh, and then there's the whole, how do we have continue to have oil and gas and transition to, um, you know, more renewables, and in one way we're trying to sort of, you know, as a, as a country balance that debate, um, so how do you see that overlap happening and how is it filtering through the conversations you're having, and then I guess secondly, how how is that overlap happening in terms of access to that supply chain, the skills, and those
0: so the more practical, technical, day-to-day things that you're seeing? Yes, so I think there's, I mean, there are a number of, Um, almost direct overlaps so going back to the point about use of the marine space there's different initiatives obviously you have offshore wind farm development but you also have um, things like repurposing reservoirs for co2 storage as well as ongoing oil and gas extraction so you know there's a direct sort of relationship there and need to coexist in that marine environment there's some interesting new projects coming through in Scotland as part of the IN programme, program which should be launched later this year, um, where you're effectively deploying offshore wind to decarbonize offshore oil and gas installations. Um, so, you know, a real hand-in-glove type development. Um, on the supply chain, I mean, I told we hosted a supply chain roundtable um, at Ten Downing Street a few weeks ago. I mean, it was a it was a really fun event the the participants I think really enjoyed it you know there was a very robust conversation and debate um but one story I told there was so back in 1998 I was as a junior lawyer I was sent off to Baku in Azerbaijan to do some homework on whether the firm I was working for should open an office there and at that time Baku was basically at Aberdeen on the Caspian the, you know, the BP and others had signed very large contracts to develop the fields in Aberdeenshire, and you know what? the the Aberdeen services community had just taken it by the scruff of the neck and descended on Baku. And everywhere you went, it was like the you know the next Scottish pub opening. The uh, somebody opened a bowling alley, um, and it, it it was it was great fun. It was a bit of a wild west type of thing. But it absolutely showed you what we've achieved in, particularly in Aberdeen, but also across the UK in terms of that oil and gas skill set and mindset. And um, if, if if I wind the clock forward, particularly around floating offshore wind, if we could get to a point where, you know, new country X decides to go into floating offshore wind in a big way, and you know what, a whole bunch of Brits descend on the place and actually do it for them. That would be a wonderful, you know, industrial legacy for for the country and, um, you know, re- a really positive outcome from us being the sort of, um, you know, first movers in this kind of space. So that, that's, that's, you know, the, so going back to the point on skill sets, I mean, I, I personally think having done it myself now from a legal perspective, I'm not an engineer, but offshore wind is not that big of a leap from oil and gas and um and anecdotally i've i'm hearing that people companies that do both lots of engineers within the organisations are saying you know what i'd like to spend the oil in the offshore wind part now please so um I, you know i think we need to recognise the two there's a lot of um of synergies between the two industries and and we should harness that we should absolutely harness it and frankly companies which are operating still solely in oil and gas, on so particularly on the service side and the professional side. There's no there's very little barrier to moving across. And in fact, it's probably a great idea to have a look.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. I think if we I think there's a there's a lot of work that's been done around the gaps of skills and and, and whether it's manufacturing or whatever it is, the gaps are big across across the board um so there there's certainly an opportunity to go after um but, but i mean i like i like i really liked your point around where uh whether it's brits descending or or, or at least the you know the skills from 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 the, that we've developed and and exporting those across the world is 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 of course you know a very exciting prospect and that is precisely i guess what's going to be happening is that the world is going to develop offshore wind now it's not a uh uk a bit of europe uh and china of course china's big and will continue to grow significantly we should not forget about the chinese offshore wind market it's many other parts of the world right brazil is clearly leading the charge in many ways but we've talked about philippines the us you know all with different timelines but these are going to be big offshore wind markets and that's going to lead to a lot of the people you're talking to uh, on a day-to-day basis these companies and uh, and investors to go well where is where is my most bang for buck, my biggest you know uh, uh, most attractive investment as such? Um, the u k. has been a leader and is and and continues to be a leader and is is looking to to maybe solve some of the kind of challenges that we've talked about today. But what in your mind does the u k. kind of need to do to remain attractive for for the offshore wind industry going forward? what What is it that needs to sort of stay there as the kind of, premier offshore wind country um, that that you want to do business with?
0: Yeah, look, I I think we need to remember that we've come a long way and we are, you know, world leading and we and we're already, frankly, a fantastic place to do business. You know, people um, you can certainly accelerate the timeline for deployment. That's you know, that's a good thing to do. Um, People. Have their views on our dual auction structure, where we bid high for crown estate leases and low for CFDs, um, but people also recognise that it's done a great job for the country in lowering um, strike prices. And it's it the thing that the CFD does in terms of an of a destination for investment. It provides you with an absolutely rock solid, um, you know, mechanism to deliver a fixed price for your power. And that, and we shouldn't underestimate the um the benefits of that in terms of attracting investment. so i I am um, attracting capital investment in this kind of international marketplace isn't top of my list of worries. My list of worries are more around the supply chain um and especially and things that you know you, there's a shortage, for example, in some of the um specialist vessels that are used to install offshore wind farms. And you hear these horror stories now of some of the bigger vessels heading over the Atlantic to the US for the summer season of installation um, because rates are higher and there's more profit to be made. And I think that's where that's the sort of thing that should keep policymakers up at night, not just in the UK, but in Europe, because I think there's a sort of Atlantic competition going on there. Um, Hopefully it will stimulate more of those vessels to be built. but to me the to me the international competition is is very much in the supply chain side of it um obviously you can there is a link between that and the way the cfd drives prices um but i think the you know th- that's where i would that's where that's where i think the um the main concern is act- attracting capital i think the uk system attracts a lot of capital and there seems to be um talking to people in the industry, lots of capital out there to deploy into UK, CFD backed offshore wind.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And actually it was, it was testament, I guess, to the system that there was still quite a large participation in the late CFD round. There was even maybe a worry that people wouldn't take part as much as they, they would, but actually they took part. And it went down a few percentage points in terms of the strike price and people still felt that was sufficient to uh to invest um okay tim thank you i think we've come to the end of our time but thank you so much for uh sharing first of all uh what an offshore wind champion actually is <laughs> uh, but you know the vitally important role that you are playing and, and just the sort of perspective that you have on from what you've seen you know, in terms of the challenges that need addressing and, and the balance that we need to strike to be able to, well, I guess essentially, reach that 50 gigawatt target and, and maybe be the, the export hub for offshore wind uh, of the world. Thanks, David. It's been a pleasure. Perfect. And thanks everyone for listening as well. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, please make sure you subscribe, give us a good rating and share with your friends.